Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. If you regularly attend the 1111 service and you're wondering what happened to Ben, where is that guy? He is around. He has been preaching at Dr. Young's circuit Saturday night, 930. So at the 11 o'clock hour, he's been out west. But next week, Ben will be back. So we'll be here next weekend. He will be back continuing our series in Philippians chapter 4. Have you ever received really bad advice before? Maybe back in January, you were talking to somebody and you said, hey, I've got this idea. I'm thinking about investing into this company I know called Zoom. Uh, they do a lot of virtual meetings. And somebody looked at you and said, that's never going to catch on. That's just so silly. Why would people do that? Maybe you're the one that has given bad advice before. That somebody has come to you and, and they've asked you to give some advice. And you gave advice. And then in hindsight, you were like, man, that was, that was really terrible advice. I remember when I was a kid... We were hanging out kind of down in this room that we called the big room, which was like our, our play area. And I was complaining while watching TV about a taste bud that I had on my tongue. I had one of those taste buds that had gotten swollen. You know how you get that one taste bud? You get you know, like a thousand taste buds. You get that one that just pops out. And then every time like you eat anything, every time you drink anything, it's just constantly bugging you. So I start complaining about this taste bud that's on my tongue. And my little sister, Beth, who's sitting next to me, she says, you should just pull it out. And I said, really? I said, that, that's a thing? Like if you just pull it out, it, it stops hurting? He was like, she, she goes, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how that works. And so I go upstairs and I, I find a pair of tweezers and I get right in front of the mirror and I take those tweezers and I put it right on that taste bud and I pluck it out. My sister's clear across the house, but she heard the screaming that came as a result of that really poor decision. I go back into the room. I said, Beth, why on earth did you tell me to pluck it out? Now my tongue is bleeding. It hurts way worse. There's a giant hole in my tongue. I said, had you ever done that before? She goes, no, I've never done that before. But I, I figured maybe that'll work, and I needed someone to try it out, and at least now we know. Terrible, terrible advice. Uh, we're in this season right now where people feel like they need to give their advice to other people about anything and everything. Now, normally that happens anyway, but it's like right now in this particular season in life when nobody has a clue what's going on, everybody has very, very strong opinions. And most of those opinions typically aren't all that helpful. We're going to continue a look in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to actually start back at the beginning of the chapter. Some of the things that we're going to look specifically in verse 8 and 9, it talks about the power of our thoughts, what we're putting into our mind. But in order to really understand, you need the context, the backdrop of what's going on in the entire chapter. If you've got your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche. To agree in the Lord. Now pause for a second and recognize what's going on. What happens throughout the book of Philippians is Paul is encouraging the church at Philippi. He's saying, you keep fighting over silly things. You need to stop it. He really tries to compare, contrast, and say that you have these trivial earthly matters that are becoming really big deals that are causing separation between you. It's causing conflict inside the church. And he's saying... Understand that it, in the eternal perspective, what you are fighting over is silly. 
It's worthless. It's not important. And then in this chapter, he specifically calls out to ladies. Can you imagine that? I mean, the way that this would work is Paul would write a letter, and then it would get passed around, and the church would stand up and read it in front of the congregation, everybody. I mean, imagine sitting there that morning having no clue, and you just get called out. Hey, y'all need to be better. Stop fighting. You're like, totally her fault. Totally her fault. Not me. Continue in verse 3. It says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then why? Why shouldn't they argue? Why should they put aside silly conflicts? Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Are you known by your reasonableness? Is that something that, are you someone that the other friends and other people say, that's someone who stirs up strife, that one, someone who stirs up conflict, that one is somebody who always is getting into it, or are you someone who is known for reasonableness? Why should we be known for reasonableness? Why should we not let these conflicts arise? He says, because the Lord is at hand. If you have an eternal perspective Sometimes the things that cause arguments right now are just silly when you have eternity at stake. The other night, my five-year-old Kinley, a week ago, t- today actually, it was National Ice Cream Day. I don't know who comes up with these days, but I'm all for that one. So I decided, without asking my wife, hey, National Ice Cream Day, I'm just going to bring home some ice cream. So I brought home some ice cream after church. And so we waited till after dinner, and after dinner, the ice cream was ready, chocolate chip cookie dough from Bluebell, because who doesn't want to mix ice cream and cookie dough? Two of the best creations in the history of, of I don't know, whatever the cook people that come up with ice cream and cookie are. Those people, those are on the Mount Rushmore of desserts. And so it's sitting over there, it's ready to go, we're eating dinner. And, and Kinley gets stuck in the broccoli. She just won't finish the broccoli. Like, it's, it's right there in front of her. And it's, it's like two bites. It, it, sometimes I wonder why are we even fighting over it. But then I remember at some point she's going to be standing in front of our pediatrician, who's a good friend of mine, Dr. Pilob. And, and he's going to not talk to mom and dad. He's going to look to her and say, do you eat what mommy and daddy eat? Or do they have to make you something separate? And, and I, gotta, I gotta have her answer honestly. No, I'm eating my broccoli. And so sometimes at the dinner table, it's like this battle, it's this fight, and she doesn't want to do it. And I'm trying to get her to understand. I'm like, Kinley, don't you just understand? I have chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. It's right over there. I mean, it's a huge bowl. It's amazing. And all you have to do is take these two bites of broccoli. I'm talking 15 seconds tops. This is not that big of a deal. Just please eat it. And 15 minutes later, that finally happened. But, but sometimes we get caught up in these minor conflicts. It's like we're so struggled with this one bite, this temporary thing of broccoli, when we've got heaven waiting. Infinitely bigger disparity between broccoli and ice cream are earth and heaven. But that's exactly what's going on. We, we have these conflicts that arise here because we don't see the in the eternal perspective. It's just silly. Verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That, that first phrase, do not be anxious about anything. If you pause right there and just stop at that, it's not that helpful of a phrase. Has anybody ever told you something like that before? A platitude, a, a phrase that maybe it sounds positive, but it's really not that helpful. You're being frustrated, you're being anxious, you're fearful, and someone says, hey, just don't be anxious. Just stop it. Sometimes we treat kids in a way that we would never treat other adults. Like your child is crying on the ground, and you look at them, and you just say, hey, stop it. Don't do that. Your child's angry, and you say, calm down. As an adult, you recognize that the most infuriating thing in the entire world is to be angry and someone to tell you to calm down, especially when you're not really that angry. But there's all these phrases that we like to say. Here's some other useless phrases. Ever had anybody say, just don't worry about it? Like you're worried and stressed out, and they say, hey, man, just don't worry about it. Maybe someone says, there's nothing you can do about it anyway. So if you can't do anything about it, just, just don't worry about it. Maybe they say, hey, try to relax and be positive. Maybe they say, get over it. Or they say this phrase, hey, it is what it is. Don't be anxious is one of those type of phrases. Like it by itself doesn't do anything. Anxiety from, from a neurological standpoint, at, at the core of the brain is the amygdala. The amygdala is that part of the brain that when you experience fear, that's what lights up. It's what starts up in your body, the fight or flight. So you get scared of something, and so your body starts to change. Your heart rate starts to go up. You start to get clammy. The, the blood in your body starts to go to your muscles. They start to tense up because they're ready to do something. Anxiety is when the part of the brain, the amygdala, is lighting up, even though in that moment you aren't actually in danger. It's thinking about future situations or circumstances. It's conflict that exists out there that you are struggling with and you're not sure what to do about it. I think right now, I, I talk to a lot of people and there's so much guilt and anxiety and doubt that exists. They, they're trying to figure out these two different decisions and they're really hard. I mean, who would have ever thought that you would have right now in our culture this conversation of should I send my kid back to school or should I not send my kid back to school? And there's so much doubt that exists with those conversations that if I send my kid, what if it ruins them for the rest of their life? Oh, but if I keep them home, what if that ruins them for the rest of their life because I'm a terrible teacher or they're not getting social norms and they're not interacting with other people? What about their mental health? There's so much doubt that goes back and forth, back and forth. What do we do about it? Paul gives very specific, practical advice. He says, no, instead of being fearful, the first step is to trust. That you replace anxiety with prayer. With spending time with God, praising God. Anxiety so often is asking this question of why. Why is this happening? What is going on? The uncertainty and the unknown. Praying to God and praising God flips that on its head. It says, I don't understand why, but I can trust that God is still in control. I can have this eternal perspective that even though it seems like a really big deal to me right now in this moment, that God is not surprised by my circumstance. God is not surprised by this situation. 
God didn't wake up in 2020 and say, uh-oh, man, I did not see that coming. What are we going to do now, gang? God continues to sit on his throne in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that everything in my life is always going to be perfect and easy. But what it does mean is this. It means that I can trust a sovereign God that is bigger than my problems. And so I, I choose to praise instead of worry. Now, you can't just flip that switch. You can't just say, I'm just going to stop worrying. It doesn't happen overnight. But I continue this process of praising God and trusting God. Then it's the first time in this verse that it mentions that word peace. That word peace in the first century, in, in Greek, they, they're pulling back from, from Hebrew, from the Old Testament, that, that word shalom. And so in the first century, what we translate as the word just peace, when we think of peace, we, th we think of just not at war. Like there's peace and there's war and really that's it. But for a Jew, it was a much more encompassing word, that peace was wholeness. That, that without peace, you're incomplete, you're struggling, you're broken. But when you have peace, you are complete, you're whole, you're made right again. The New Testament takes that word and says, Jesus comes to bring peace. That you are broken, but with Jesus and a relationship with God, he can give you a peace that passes all understanding. It's a supernatural peace. It's a peace that makes you whole and complete when everything else is falling apart. You are incapable of achieving it on your own. It's only through Jesus. And then pick up in verse 8. He says, finally. It's interesting. He also says, finally, at the beginning of chapter 3 in Philippians. You can tell it's the preacher verse. He's, he's wrapping up. He says, all right, I'm just, I'm just wrapping up. I just got one more thing. And now I'm wrapping up again. I got one more thing. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is someone who puts this into practice in his own life. He's writing this from prison. He lives a life, just this chapter before, he says that my life I consider all worth nothing. It's all rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ. He talks about being beaten for the sake of the gospel. How can he continually be rejected and continually beaten and continually face the things he's facing and yet go forward with the mission that God has given him and do it with joy? There's a time in Acts where Paul is in front of people, he's preaching the gospel, they take him, they beat him, they stone him, they drag him out of the city, they leave him for dead. Paul gets up and goes back into the city and preaches some more. I mean, that's crazy. I can tell you that it's easy to be really insecure when you stand up and preach. Like, you, you stand up and you preach, and, and some people are positive, and then you get that one email or that one person that complains about something, and you're just like, oh, this is the end of the world. I can't believe they didn't like my story. I told a joke and nobody laughed. I just, it was, I blew it today. It was awful. Paul literally got beat almost to death after a sermon. And he picked himself right up and said, well, they just need a little bit more. And he went right back in. How can you live that way? 
How can you live in a way that from a worldly perspective makes no sense whatsoever? It's because of this. It's because Paul replaced anxiety with a trust in God. And how did he accomplish it? He accomplished it with his mind. He accomplished it by training his mind to focus on things of worth and value. This is a recurring theme. The power of your thought, the power of a new mind. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, it says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. That's the NASB. It's interesting the way that King James puts it. It says, as so a man thinketh, he is. So however you are thinking, your mind is controlling who you are going to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. That we're wrestling those thoughts. And we're not just letting them float out there. We're being intentional. Isaiah 26.3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Mark chapter 7 verse 21 says, from within, or another way to say it, is the overflow of the heart. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, that sin that exists in our life, it's this overflow out of our heart and our mind. Romans 8, 6 says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Colossians 3, 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Here's what we don't recognize sometimes. And that is there is a battle going on for your mind and for my mind. Every single day there is a battle, whether I acknowledge it, whether I recognize it, there is a battle going on for my mind and my thoughts. The advertisers are constantly trying to invade your mind and your thought in order to convince you to do something. Every time you turn on social media, you have different voices with different messages that are trying to get you to think a certain way. Every time you read the comment section of your friend's Facebook post or Instagram post or whatever post, there is a battle going on trying to convince. Most of the time a really poorly done battle that no one's being convinced of anything. But there is still this battle that's going on. We have thousands and thousands of thoughts a day and so many of those thoughts we're not taking captive. The author Carter Godwin Woodson, he's considered the father of black history. He was studying African Americans and, and slavery and that mindset of, of, of how they could come out of it. And this is what he said when studying that. This was written in 1933. He says, if you can control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his action. When you determine what a man shall think, you do not have to concern yourself about what he will do. If you make a man feel that he is inferior, you do not have to compel him to accept an inferior status, for he will seek it himself. That they convinced them to think a certain way, and by controlling their thoughts, they knew that they could ultimately control their actions and their destiny. Now, th there's some danger here where you go to this extreme, this, this worldly counterfeit, where you, you buy into this lie of it's just the power of positive thinking. 
So there's some truth that exists there that matches up with, with Scripture, but power of positive thinking apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ might make you happier. It might make some benefit in your life, but it can never give you peace. So understand that, that Scripture lines up with some of those pieces of the power of positive thinking, but not all of those pieces. They, they've hijacked some core truths of Scripture. What are those core truths? It's recognizing that your mind is important, that there's a battle going on, and you can't just haphazardly allow whatever message and whatever image and whatever voice that exists out there to speak into your life. Probably right now, there are some lies that you believe in your mind about yourself right now. And maybe you got it really young, maybe from a very early age, you believed the lie that you were worthless. Maybe from a very early age, you started to have self-doubt. And that is something that has plagued you. And so throughout your life, it becomes this self-fulfilling proph prophecy that, that you see things happening over and over and over again. That simply remind yourself, okay, this lie that I've picked up that I believe... I'm clearly making it happen over and over. I think that I'm worthless, therefore I'm living out this life and exemplifying that worthlessness in my decision making. There are lies that we believe that Satan is speaking through this world to us. And if you cling to those lies, it steals and robs and destroys what God has in store for you. Now let's look at the, the two verbs that we see in that verse. That in verse 8 and verse 9, that, that Paul talks about thinking and he talks about doing. That when he talks about thinking, he, he lists all these things. That you should think whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. That, that when your mind is focused on these things, focused on holy things, all things that resemble the life of Christ. That those attitudes come from that mindset, and then those actions in your life will start to demonstrate those same things. How do we do that? Uh, my wife and I, uh, we've got four kids. It's always a little tricky to tell that story because uh, our third daughter, as many of you know, uh, her name was Lane. Uh, it was a healthy pregnancy until the very end, the last few weeks. Um, they started to see that something wasn't quite right. Uh, she was born, she was born sick. Uh, she lived for four months and then she passed away. A really tragic, difficult valley that we walked through together as a family and as a couple. And then after that, uh, my, my wife started having these conversations about, hey, let's, let's have another child. We always talk about having four, and so she wanted to have another baby. And so kind of I, reluctantly, honestly, on my part, it was like, okay, let's, let, let's do it. And so we, we have Evie. Evie's this amazing, beautiful, beautiful daughter. But the pregnancy with Evie was possibly the hardest nine months, even including some of the valley that we had just walked through with, with Lane. The pregnancy itself was one of the most difficult journeys we've ever been through because of fear and anxiety. 
that, that especially my wife, that, that she had this just panic and fear and self-doubt. And, and she felt like so often falsely she would blame herself for things relating and that she knew that she was pregnant with another life and kept worrying that things would go wrong. And so we'd go to a doctor's visit. I was with, with her at every single doctor's visit. And the doctor would say, it looks great. Everything is healthy. Everything is fine. And that would be a really positive thing for her for about five hours. But the moment that we got home again, that doubt and that anxiety and that fear started creeping in again every single time. Multiple times at night, we, we ended up going to the hospital because she just felt like something was wrong. It was a crippling time. And here is how she explained how she kind of came over some of that. She would do these three things that, that first... She would acknowledge the feeling that she had and recognize that it was a lie. And she would ask herself, okay, where is that feeling coming from? When I have these panic attacks, when I have this anxiety, when I have this crippling fear, what are those moments in my life that that is at an extreme? Those things or, or feelings are heightened. Well, where is it coming from? Okay, I'm going to acknowledge the feeling that I have. And then secondly, she would set her mind, just like it says, on truth. She would start with trying to figure out, okay, what are the things I know that are true? She rationally knew that everything was fine with Evie. She'd just been to the doctor. She rationally knew that she wasn't about to die. But it didn't change the fact that that's what she felt. And so she would start with what is truth. How can I focus on truth? She would say, okay, what is truth? Truth is that God is in control. Truth is that God is sovereign and loves me. And then she'd say, okay, truth is I just went to the doctor and the doctor said that everything was fine and okay. And so as she would pray, and, and just like Paul said, praise God for the, the good things that we had in life, she would focus on her mind on thinking through those type of things. And then the third thing that she said was so important was community. Surrounding herself with people that could speak life, that she could be honest with. And they could speak life and say, hey, we are right here with you. And not say things like, hey, just, just don't worry about it. You just shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't be anxious. No, instead they would sit with her. They would acknowledge the feelings. That they would recognize what she's going through and cry with her when she cried. And, and those were steps and processes towards changing a mindset. Now, now, let me take a pause and recognize that there are anxiety orders that really need professional help. So I'm not talking about real chemical, biological anxiety disorders that, that need professional help. But for everybody, there's some seasons you're going to go through in life where you will have anxiety. How do you combat that? It's a battle. It's a war that you have to take your mind captive. What typically fills our mind? Here's most of the time what we do is we're not actively pursuing what goes into our mind. We're just kind of haphazardly going through the day. Think about probably the way that you wake up in the morning is the way that most adult Americans wake up in the morning. The very first thing that you do when you open your eyes, probably your alarm clock is your smartphone, and you pick up that cell phone, and you start scrolling through probably the same three or four websites that you always go to, or apps that you always go to every single morning. And, and then you just kind of haphazardly go through the same routine that exists every day in your life. And at night, you watch the same shows, and you sit in the same position on the couch, 
and you have the same conversations with the same people, that instead of taking captive our thoughts or being intentional with our thoughts or being mindful with our thoughts, we're just allowing whatever message that exists out there to invade our thoughts. But here's the thing. The overflow of our thoughts will be the actions in our life. That's what he goes on to say. So he says, think these things and then do these things. He said, you have received what I've passed down, what I've taught. You, you've heard my teaching. You've seen it in action in my life. And now I want you to take those things, think through things that are pure and holy and godly, and then put into practice in your life the fruit of the Spirit. That there should be no such thing as an asymptomatic Christian. There shouldn't be a Christian that's walking around that nobody can tell that they have life change that exists in their life. That if I have a relationship with Jesus, that changes everything. And as a part of a relationship with Jesus, it changes my heart so that I desire to put into my mind godly and holy things and pursue messages that are uplifting and pointing me towards the cross. And the overflow of those thoughts are going to be actions that demonstrate life. Actions that demonstrate an eternal perspective and not an earthly, temporary, material perspective. Actions that ultimately will lead to the destination of my life, the destiny that God has for me. Uh, there's a, a guy named James Allen in 1903. He wrote a book about Proverbs 23.7 called As a Man Thinketh. He wrote this, he said, a man's mind may be likened to a garden which may be intelligently cultivated or allowed to run wild. But whether cultivated or neglected, it must and will bring forth. If no useful seeds are put into it, then an abundance of useless weeds, seeds will fall therein and will continue to produce their kind. So uh, imagine then that you have this garden that is your mind. And if you've ever tried to, to plant things, if you've ever tried to cultivate a garden, you recognize that it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. That's one of the things we did during quarantine. My wife decided she wanted a garden, and so we built a big garden. And it's a whole lot of work. And we also found that seven-year-olds and five-year-olds and almost two-year-olds are not helpful at all with gardens. Like zero help. And if you don't cultivate the garden, what happens? Weeds. I mean, instantly. Here's the thing. You didn't walk out there and say, okay, I've got some, some seeds I bought at the store, and they're called weeds. There's, there's a very special section, and I'm just going to sprinkle a few of those in there. Like, you don't have to do anything to get weeds. Like, there's zero effort involved, and that's the point. It's when you are not intentional with the garden, the wrong thing sprouts up. When you are not intentional with what's going into your mind, the wrong things start to be birthed. That if you want to grow fruit, you've got to find the seeds that bring forth fruit. And you have to plant those seeds continually over and over and over again. If I am planting one seed and then don't do anything... I think that's sometimes what we do as Christians. We say, okay, I'm carving out this specific time for God, and that I'm going to give to God, and the rest of the time I'm just going to live however I want. And if I do that, it's, it's like if you go to a garden and say, okay, I'm going to plant my one seed, and I'm going to water my one seed, and now I'm going to walk away, and three weeks later I'm going to come back and I'm going to try and do it again. 
the moment you turn around and come back, everything has gone crazy. That a garden takes constant work. It's an everyday effort. It's an everyday battle. And what, what Paul is trying to get us to understand is the same is true for our mind. There's a battle going on for your thoughts. And in Christ Jesus, you can have a new mind. But guess what? It doesn't mean that it's just a magic silver button that, woo, I don't have to worry about anything else. No, that new mind, that new heart means that you are going to want to desire to pursue things that are God-like. I'm going to try and recognize the voices that I'm allowing into my head. And certain voices I need to turn off. And certain voices I need to turn down. And instead, focus on the areas in my life that exemplify truth and pure things and holy things and excellent things. And it's amazing what you'll find that when you start to let life come into your mind and life, words that are true from the scripture about what God thinks about you and who you are. You stop letting your identity be defined by all these other things in the world, but instead let your identity be found and named by Christ. The overflow into your actions, you start to see fruit. And then you start to see new habits. And then you start to see a life that is different. Three final things. Recognize this. We grow what we plant. You want to live a godly life, what are you planting into your mind? Uh, unfortunately, here's what we often think. We often think that we can plant trash and grow fruit, but that's not true. You can't plant trash and grow fruit. And then lastly, the question for myself, the question for you, the question for all of us, what am I planting? Paul ends with, again, peace. That word shalom, a completeness. Something that is broken, something that is missing, that has now been made whole. Something that has been restored. And Paul is saying that's what God wants you to enjoy and have in your life. But in order to experience that peace, if you're not a believer, the first step is to trust Jesus with your life. If you are a believer, then it's recognizing that, okay, I have a new life in Jesus. Now I need to pursue the things that he wants me to pursue. I can't just be lays off fair with my mind and my thoughts. Instead, I need to be intentional. I need to take every thought captive. I need to be mindful of what I'm allowing to influence who I am, who I'm becoming, and where God is going to take my life.